Stay up on the real culture of Detroit by tuning in to the Detroit is Different Podcast Network weekly. Music, art, business, comedy, and never-before-told stories from the people of Detroit. This is the Detroit is Different Podcast Network, the culture of an American classic city. You're listening to the Detroit is Different Podcast Network. All right. It is another day here in the Detroit is different studios. This is another special day. Another special guest as uh, this man is connected to my first love, which is music. As I've told people, oftentimes my whole life is like a soundtrack. So somebody that has been connected to music and so many different musicians of all types and all sorts speak highly of you. Uh, And there's some people like I wish he could do more. I wish he could do more. I wish he could do more. And that's kind of where I see this discussion going, because like when you start doing something, people want more, 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 more. They sure do. Howard Hurts, how you feeling today? I'm feeling great. Feeling yes, great. sir. Yes, sir. So it's good to have you in effect. And um, you're definitely connected to the Detroit Music Awards. But let's start with the word Detroit first. Uh, sure. Family in Detroit. What What's the connection to Detroit? Well, actually, I was born in Canada. Okay. Uh, small town north of Toronto called Barrie, Barrie, Ontario. Okay, every time somebody says small town, I, I, I like to uh, get their definition of it. How big? Uh, well, like how it, when people? I left, it was 7,500 people. Okay, that's okay. not that many people. But now it's over 100,000, I guess. It's wow. become kind of a commuting city to mm-hmm. Toronto because it's on a lake, nicely uh-huh. situated, and a lot of people live there and commute either by train or car to Toronto. Okay, so Toronto, one of uh, what I consider the cleaner New York. Yeah. That's what I always yeah. say. And Chicago as well. Uh, They're yeah, both yeah, kind true, of a... true, 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 true. Uh, so, yeah, so I was born there, but I moved to Detroit when I was only four years old. Wow. My four. family moved here. I decided I'd join them. Okay, that, that makes sense. At four, you don't really have much say. Exactly. All exactly. right, so what led your family to come here? Um, business. My mm-hmm. father uh, had been in the scrap metal business in Canada with his father-in-law and brother-in-law and decided he wanted to do something on his own. And his sister lived in Detroit and owned a drugstore. I think it was on Oakland. Oh, not even far from here. No, not too far from here. And and he ended up, uh, and if I can remember, might have been Kirby. Russell and Kirby area, something hmm. like that, That an area that has since become I-75, I think. Yes. Uh, he bought a drugstore hmm. uh, and had that for several years. And we moved, when we first moved here, we lived really close to here on uh, Glendale and Linwood. Oh, yeah, you were like down, yeah, that's down the street. Yeah, yeah, Glendale okay. and Linwood uh, for, I don't know, about three, four years and then moved to northwest Detroit, more um, right by Mumford. Uh, okay. I was on Burwood, six houses from Mumford. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to Schultz Elementary, which mm. I'm proudly wearing the T-shirt today. We okay. still have reunions from Schultz. Okay. And, uh, but then rather than going to Mumford, I ended up at Cast Tech. Ain't that something? Like a lot of people have gone to the big CT. That's right. Technicians. Yep. All right. So let's talk a little bit about uh, mother and father and what was that like? Uh, you were so young. I know you don't really. It, 
know the difference between like what Canada was like compared to Detroit. But do you remember anything of this neighborhood back in the day, the Glendale neighborhood? Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember and, and I know what what Toronto and, and Barrie were like as well, because you visit our relatives live uh-huh. there still. So we would travel mm-hmm. back and forth a couple times a year and still do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll be going there next month for okay. Canadian Music Week. I'm on a panel. Okay. Uh, so I regularly go to Toronto. But, uh, yeah, Detroit, it was it was uh, very active, and, and uh, I went to McCullough Elementary. Okay, we definitely know about uh, McCullough. For, uh, I guess it was kindergarten, first grade, and half a second grade hmm. until we moved, and then I went to Schultz. Okay, so what do you remember about the neighborhood back then? Well, I remember, I remember the like corner of Dexter Davison was, you mm-hmm. know, real busy. There was the big grocery store there. the The Jewish Community Center was right by there as well. Huh. Uh, at the time, hmm. uh, I think it was right when it was moving, or maybe it had already Transition. moved to yeah. uh, to Myers and Curtis. That's hmm. where the Jewish Center ended up. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, was at Myers and Curtis, right near where we moved to. Okay. Um, but uh, you know, I just remember it vibrant, and mm-hmm. uh, and you know, walking down to to Dexter or walking over uh, along Linwood, and it was uh, it was fun. We had uh, I remember the biggest activity at elementary school was playing marbles. Huh. I don't know where that came from, but Ain't no but I remember we all had our marble collections, and we would play, you know, a game of marbles where you had to win other mm-hmm. people's marbles, and mm-hmm. it was and it was a fun thing on the playground at McCullough. Okay, all right. So Linwood Dexter, and being a music person, and I hear these stories because I've lived. I was born in '82, and I've lived in this neighborhood my whole life, and then I hear these stories about the the different bars and jazz clubs and all of the music scene that was like up and down Linwood and up and down Dexter and it's just surprising to me because I'm trying to like place these places because today is you know I mean the, the most music you're getting is a Sunday church service right other than that right. you're not and I hear these stories of like Yusef Latif like John Coltrane spending the night at Yusef Latif's house and then he like just walk from bar to bar just to play and it's like wow you'd be like like you look up and it's like, man, that's that's Coltrane, you know. Right. So, do you remember these clubs? No, that? no, that, I, I wouldn't. I, I remember uh, uh, shoe store. I remember a deli, mm-hmm. uh, but I I don't remember it. Clubs. A lot of I was too young stuff. to be okay. paying attention to that. To I anything guess, like you know, that, you were right. like more concerned with marbles and school, that's right. friends and all. All right, so let's uh, let's go into that story as school continues and just your introduction to music. Were you playing instruments? Well, my introduction to music was. Uh, I remember when I was six years old. I remember being on uh, on Glendale and listening to the radio, and I f- heard Elvis sing "Hound Dog" hmm. on the radio, and I was hooked. Ain't that something? And I remember, and I I've got a pretty good singing voice, or at mm-hmm. least I think I do. Okay. And and at six years old, I thought I sounded exactly like Elvis, and I could pull off Hound Dog where you know people couldn't tell the difference. Okay, right? so you were you were <laughs> like uh, you started off in in uh, in the Presley School of Music. Yep. Okay. Yep. And then and then from there, um, you know, it was Chuck Berry and and James Brown. Hmm. Um, 
and I started playing guitar. I was probably 11 years old or so. Started playing guitar, just strumming guitar to go along with singing. Did you? So I did would you get learn? songbooks. Yeah, and, I was gonna say, and just for myself. You know, okay, so you self-taught play. yourself. Yeah, and then ended up in a couple little groups with guys in high school where mm-hmm. we'd play. Like I remember going to Children's Hospital one time to play for the sick kids, and mm-hmm. and uh, but it was you know it was always a hobby. I never really thought of it as a career. I would have liked to, but I never thought I was. Mm-hmm. that good that I could really excel and, and uh, you know, make it a career. Never entered my mind, really. Even in, in high school, surprisingly, I, I didn't pursue any of the music uh, avenues that I could have. You know, mm-hmm. the musical theater, for example, Cass had a great music program. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, some of the top jazz artists in the world came out of Cass Tech. True indeed. Uh, and... Uh, but it wasn't on my radar. But I, but I did take courses in in radio and television. Hmm. Uh, I have, at least my teacher told me I had okay. a great voice for radio. Mm-hmm. So that was something you know. Entertainment was you were already in that mix. In that mix, but I didn't know you know where or how or what or mm-hmm. if or you know it wasn't really on the forefront. It was around sixth grade when. Uh, a couple teachers of mine said, you're going to be a lawyer. And they said that because I would argue with them and, you know, and be right. Hilarious. So I didn't know what a lawyer was, Mm -hmm. but in the back of my mind, I'm going to be a lawyer. Okay. Okay. So I still haven't totally figured out what a lawyer is, but, but an advocate, I guess. Uh, So when I went to uh, undergrad, I went to Wayne. Mm -hmm. So I was still in the city, uh, moved Downtown originally to the fraternity house. Uh, Around what, on, what on, years? What what years? What so year? I graduated Cass in '67. The uh, year of the rebellion. Right? The year of the rebellion. As a matter of fact, I was with my high school friend Joe. Uh, we drove to Montreal. I had bought a used uh, Mustang convertible. Wow! So Mustangs they came out in. 64, I think they called it a 64 and a half, the first model. Mm-hmm. And in 67, I bought a used 65 Mustang convertible. Mm-hmm. And we drove to Montreal for the World's Fair right mm-hmm. after graduation. Okay. And we were on the way back. And it was, uh, I, I don't remember why, we drove through the night. And it was just around dawn as we were coming from the tunnel mm-hmm. and getting on the lodge to head north and we saw smoke mm-hmm. uh, everywhere. We didn't know what it was and, and turned on the radio and they weren't talking too much about it and then all of a sudden it came out that was the beginning of mm. the uh, of the rebellion. Mm. Okay. All right. So let's uh, let's even before that just because so much has changed as uh, we talk about Things in American history. I remember, and I still, I still go often to Canada because it's people I have friends over there. What was it like crossing the border back then? Well, it was much easier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when it, uh, you know, you would just you know show a driver's license or something as an adult or mm-hmm. whatever, and you know they would just you know wave you through before 
Okay, uh, so we'll, before yeah, nine eleven, yeah, and yeah. you know before it got really strict. But I do remember one time, um, well, a few times coming back from Canada because I had long hair and was a quote unquote hippie. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would get pulled over and searched. You know, the whole yeah, car would get searched and we go through the luggage. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, mm-hmm. and then, uh, but one time. Um, let's see, it would have been right after 9-11, but before the requirement that you had a passport mm-hmm. to cross the border. So it was in, uh, what's that, 2002, uh, my mom died, mm. and she had kept an account in Canada uh, so that when she went back there, she didn't have to worry about the yeah, dollar no. fluctuating or whatever, for whatever reason. You know, there was you know not a lot of money in it. I don't know, $600 or something left in it. But uh, after she had died, I went over to Windsor to the Toronto Dominion Bank to close out the account. Mm-hmm. And I get to the border coming back to Detroit, and they said, uh, where's your passport? No, they say, where were you born? I said, well, I was born in Canada, but I'm a U.S. citizen. Well, do you have proof of your U.S. citizenship or a passport that shows it? And I said, no, I, I don't carry that. All you need is a driver's license at the border. They said, well, pull over and, and, and go into that office over there. Mm-hmm. So I go in there and they say, you know, we need to see your passport. Hmm. And I said, I don't, I don't have yeah, a passport. Uh, and they kept me there for about an hour and a half. Hmm. And they said, well, maybe you should have your wife bring your passport down. I said, no, my wife teaches school like an hour and a half from here. And then she'd have to go to the house and call. I'm not sending her. Look it up on the computer. You should be able to see on the computer Mm -hmm. that I have a passport and where I was born and all that. And they said, well, when you became a U.S. citizen, it was you were – 13 years old or something, and we don't have records on hmm. the computer that go back that far. Hmm. I said, well, we got to work this out somehow because I'm not just going to sit yeah, here. No. And then all of a sudden, the woman, she, you know, she says, well, just sit down and you know, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll figure something out. And all of a sudden, she says uh, to her friends, good night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. And I said, wait a minute. <laughs> what I'm about me? <laughs> So finally, someone else says, "Well, I'll take it over," and and you know they eventually just let me go. It was ridiculous. Yeah. But so it, it went from being very easy to being more difficult. I mm-hmm. guess is the long answer to that short question. Yeah, because I, I would I would only imagine because I remember like in the uh, in the late nineties uh, b- before nine eleven, just what it was like going over. So I can imagine like maybe in sixty seven when you rolled over, it was probably just like it was probably like going to Ohio or something. Not quite. I mean, they okay. still did okay. check you. They still had the, you know, it still the guards was U.S. There customs. And, yeah, yeah. Okay. It was still U.S. customs and U.S. immigration. Okay. Yeah. All right. So um, from there, Wayne State. Uh, at Wayne State, uh, what did you take up and study? Well, I went through a, a few different majors. Okay. I still had law school in the back of my mind, but wasn't sure what I was going to do. Uh and I majored, I don't know how I got to economics, I think was one of them. And mm-hmm. they, I found that boring. Mm-hmm. 
And I ended up in psychology. Wait, though. let me let me tell you something from, from as a Walsh graduate. I have a I have a litany of professors that would argue against you. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I found a boy. I'm not saying it is boy. <laughs> um, but I ended up in psychology, and I really liked psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had to earn. I, I've always worked since I was. I don't know, 11, 12 years old. I started off as a paper boy. I assume you did because you, you were able to buy a Mustang, which kind of goes to my one of my last Detroit is Different questions. Of yeah. What was your first car and where did you go when you first right. got it? Yeah, but, there you um, go. <laughs> answered you that already. already answered that question. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so I sold, then I went to selling shoes and because hmm. uh, a cousin of mine was the supervisor for all of the federal department store shoe departments in the region one second time out i didn't even know jobs like that existed but i guess that's a i guess that is a a whole different era of retail uh industry and everything so so basically even though sears i'm I'm gonna speak definitely back then like so sears roebuck and um at the time jail hudson's had to steal uh I guess, follow whatever the rules and regulations of this department of all shoe stores was together? Well, I was at Federal Department Store, which was oh, a okay. chain in oh, okay. here. I think it was national, but it was a, a Oh, big it was just happened here. to be called. It was like, it's like, so like Federal. FedEx. It was just called Federal. Federal Department Store. Hey, yeah. Awesome. It was a big department store, and they had their biggest one, I think, in the town at least, was on uh, Grand River and Greenfield. Uh and that's where I started working uh, as a stock boy. One second. All right. I'm really blown. You're blowing my mind. So right where we used to call that Mammoth Shopping Center, that maybe have been, has been there for forever. I'll Grand tell you, River it, it's the southeast corner of Grand River and Greenfield. Yeah. So that, okay, that building has been there for a minute. Then. Yeah. I think that's something. So I don't know if it's still there or, mm-hmm. or what. But anyway, so I, I I started as a stock boy, and then soon, I don't know how old I was, maybe 14 or mm-hmm. something, started actually selling shoes there and did well. Mm-hmm. And I, I worked with kids a lot, selling, they had a lot of big children's department. And then there was a, um, and, and I had a, even though it wasn't totally legal yet, I had a, um, a motorbike, mm-hmm. a Honda 50. Hmm. And I would ride that when the weather was okay. Otherwise, I'd take the bus or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or maybe my parents sometimes would take me. I don't remember. But I, I would go to work. And, and then as I got a little older, uh, there was a shoe store in Southfield called Jerome's Shoes. Used to be on uh, Wyoming and Curtis. Mm-hmm. And then he moved to uh, Lazar and... and uh, 11 mile road hmm. and I forget how I found out about it but I heard he was looking for a salesperson for after you know after school and and it was more money than I was making in federal so I moved and, and started working for him I don't know probably when I was uh, 15 16 years old and made good money okay and uh, so I Always had a car. I ended up getting rid of the Mustang because it was a lemon, mm-hmm. uh, and then got a uh, Pontiac, a Pontiac Tempest convertible. 
Pontiac Tempest. I, I've never seen one. I know it's like a world of people that wish you would have kept that Mustang yeah. and would have bought it from you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it would be worth a lot of money now. <laughs> just know. for the body alone. Yeah, the, the Tempest was like, if you knew the GTO, mm-hmm. uh, it, it was the same uh, body, but it was the cheap version. Uh, okay. The GTO hadn't even come out yet. It came okay. out a few years later, I think. But or maybe around the same time. But okay. anyway. So that's so, what, that's so what I were. so I sold shoes to kids, okay? So I'm majoring in psychology and I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'll be a child psychologist. Hmm. I liked working with kids. And that I thought it would be an interesting field. So I took a a field study at Wayne, you know, as part of the curriculum uh, where it was like a big brother big sister type program, program where as a student, you were matched with a kid who had been diverted from the juvenile justice system, hmm. and you'd go once a week during the semester, like on the weekend for a few hours, and be with the kid and do an activity, but where you could talk, you know, not mm-hmm. just go sit and watch a movie, mm-hmm. but, you know, maybe go to the zoo or go somewhere mm-hmm. where you could, you know, have a conversation Interact, and, and try to, yeah. you know, find out why they were getting What's in up? trouble yeah. and... and persuade them or, or yeah. you know, subtly mm-hmm. uh, help them to see the light that, you know, you don't need to get in trouble to yeah. to get through life. So I liked doing that. And then the professors, there were two professors that were teaching it, they hired me actually for the next semester hmm. to be a supervisor for that same course <laughs> where I would meet with the students that would meet with once the, a week to talk about okay. their experiences with the kids. Ain't that so? So I said to them, so I'm, you know, I'm thinking of going and majoring in psychology. And I told them the whole story about kids mm-hmm. and about being a lawyer. And I was conflicted. Do I go to law school? Do I go to psych grad school? And uh, one of the two professors was a psychologist at the juvenile court. You remember the name? No, Not I on it. Don't. Okay. I, I okay. should, but I don't. Okay. He was a psychologist at juvenile court, and the other one was a probation officer at juvenile court. Ain't that something? And what they said to me was, wait a minute, you don't have to go into child psychology to work with kids. There's a public defender office huh. in juvenile court. You could be a juvenile defender, so you could go to law school. And, really and then the work with situation. kids who are really in trouble, not yeah, just sort of right. in trouble. Yeah, you got that right. So that's what I decided I was going to do. Hmm. And uh, went to law school, went to Wayne, uh, majored in, uh, well, in law school you don't really major in anything. But, you know, took courses, took criminal courses, took, but I always knew that someday I may end up in business because, you know, I'd been selling shoes, and then for a while I opened a, a retail store wow. with my brother uh, in Ferndale on Nine Mile and Woodward while I was in undergrad, huh. kind of a card and gift shop. So I always thought, well, I might end up in some kind of business. So I took business courses, tax and business planning and okay. corporations and things like that, just to have them in the... Yeah, it's like if you're going to... You need to take uh, the different elective courses, so why not take something that you really would use possibly at as opposed some point, to, right as opposed to yeah rate my professor wasn't out back in the day right so uh after the first year usually first year normally you can't get jobs as a law clerk mm-hmm. when you're in law school but beginning in second year some people do get 
jobs as a law clerk. So when second year rolled around, I made an appointment to meet with the director of the juvenile defender office and went over there and told him my story and how I ended up there. I said, it's kind of fate, you know, that I'm here Mm -hmm. because, you know. Everything adds up. It all kind of led me to being here. So when do I start, Mm -hmm. you know? And he said, well, uh, I'm sorry, but we we don't hire law students. (laughs) We only hire lawyers that have already passed the bar. Uh huh. And I said, uh, can I correct one thing that you just said? Mm-hmm. And he kind of looked at me like, okay, what? And I said, you never have hired a law student before. Mm-hmm. I'm your first. Mm-hmm. And that's a brazen attitude. I convinced him. And, that's and, a brazen attitude. <laughs> Convinced him and and ended up getting the job. So I was just going to be a law clerk at first, right? Uh You know, doing research for the lawyers and this and that. But it turns out that, you know, you're allowed as a law student, and I'm not sure what the rules are now, honestly, but at the time at least, if you're either in a public defender office or a prosecutor's office, you're allowed to practice under supervision Mm -hmm. in the court. Okay. So what happened was the first day, uh, one of the lawyers had to go to court, and he said, you know, come on with me, and I'll show you. He was going to do mm-hmm. just preliminary hearings where they just set the bond kind of a thing, like an arraignment for the mm-hmm. kids. He said, come on and watch, and, you know, you'll learn from it, I'm sure. And, you know, he does a couple of them, and then all of a sudden he gets paged to another courtroom and says, take over. So here I am, you know, and I said, okay, well, I wasn't being supervised because he was gone, but I did the rest of the arraignments and then had a talk with my boss a few days later, and he says, well, do you want to actually start taking cases and and have a caseload? I said, hell yeah, that's what Mm -hmm. I'm here for. So I started to handle uh, a caseload, and the, uh, the next semester I took most of my classes at night so I could work during the day, mm-hmm. and uh, my second and third year, I was working, handling all kinds of cases, including jury trials. Hmm. What what was that like? As uh, I definitely have thought that uh, the, the, what you're going into, uh, some of my clients are in my marketing firm, are attorneys uh, often. Um, in, you know, interacting with the public defender's office from time to time, uh, just being a black male. I mean, you know, just what I've seen, you know, justice is uh, as I'm going to use this from uh, one of my favorite attorneys, uh, attorney Todd Russell Perkins. It's a strange bird. <laughs> so what what was that like? What was that experience like just seeing that? Well, I happen to know Todd pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a case together where I was an expert witness on the case and he mm-hmm. represented a party. But uh, it, it was intense. I mean, you know, this is in the, in the mid-70s. Um, Young Boys, Inc. Mm-hmm. were very active, you know, uh, mm-hmm. selling drugs. And, and uh, the Errol Flynn's mm-hmm. was another gang that was active then. And I was representing these kids who were getting busted for, you know, yeah. uh, various crimes, mostly drug crimes from those two gangs. But 
it, it was intense. So two of – another lawyer and I decided that on every serious crime, we were going to ask for a jury – uh, only about five years or six years before that, I think, had the Michigan legislature passed a law saying that if you're a juvenile and what you're being charged with would be a felony if you were an adult, mm-hmm. that you have the right to a jury. Yes. Okay. It wasn't constitutionally mandated for kids, so, but they did pass a law. So let, so me, let me ask you this then, um, just as we're getting into this. So oftentimes then it would be bench trials. Uh, that Always, yes, mostly. Hmm. Hmm. So we decided that for two reasons we had to ask for jury trials. One was because if we asked for enough jury trials, we'd bog the system down. And that would make it more likely that we could negotiate a better deal for our client if there was a deal to be made. But secondly, if we did have to go to trial, we had a much better chance of winning with a jury than we did with a judge because they were jaded and they, mm-hmm. for the most part, assumed that they were all guilty. Yeah, I mean, uh, so much of, of the time and the temperature, even today, is I don't know if you're familiar with um, Michelle Alexander's work, the the new Jim Crow um, you're dealing with a pro- so many young black males and a lot of the judges back then, I can only imagine, were old white men. So uh, what their perception of things are, uh, you probably had a higher probability of ending up with a jury of your peers, especially in a city like Detroit. This recorder's court was still around then. Right. So it was a lot of different things that could assist in, in heavy, you know, heavy justice matters. Oh, absolutely. So, like that. So. We, we were doing this, and uh, and it was effective, and, and it got to a point where they had to bring in a visiting judge to handle our cases when we wanted it, if it was going to go to jury trial, because the other judges didn't have the time to be tied up for a week or whatever it would be, mm-hmm. you know, in a trial, and or didn't want to. Uh, so there was this judge, I think his name was Judge Brezina, and he was an older gentleman who was a retired Hamtramck district judge. Mm -hmm. And they brought him in to handle cases. And I was in the middle of, uh, oh, and he used to take uh, phone calls right at the bench, right in the middle of the jury trial. The phone would ring. uh, That sounds a lot like sometimes what I've seen in courtrooms today. Yeah, well, he'd pick up the phone, though, and and be talking about going to the track that night and which horses are running with his friends on the phone right in front of the jury. It was Humorous. It was refreshing, maybe. Hilarious. (laughs) So one time, I'm in the middle of my third murder, Mm. murder jury trial in front of him, okay? Mm. And phone rings, and he picks up the phone, and he says, uh, yeah, he's here. Uh Uh-huh. Well, let me pass a message along to him. What can I help you with? This is the judge. It was surprising that the judge would answer the phone, right? Yes. Uh, you know, so. Figured that'd be the I'll, bailiff or something. Right, exactly. So, you know, what can I, okay, okay, well, I'll let him know. And he hangs up the phone and he says, Hertz, approach the bench. And I go, oh, what did I do wrong this time, right? Mm-hmm. So I say, yes, judge. And he says, I thought you were a lawyer. And I said, no, no, you know, and he knew. Uh-huh. 
I'm practicing under the court rule that allows you to practice mm. under supervision. And, and, you know, we had talked about it many times because we were both travelers. That's another mm. story of mine. I traveled all over the world. And, and uh, you know, we had showed each other pictures. He knew I had just graduated law school, taken the bar, but I wasn't a lawyer yet. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, I thought you were a lawyer. I said, no, you, you know I'm not. And he said, well, that was your office calling. They just found out. Oh, no, wait, before he said that, he said, and where's your supervisor? And I turned around, knowing he wasn't there. I said, gee, he must have stepped out for a minute, Mm -hmm. right? And he said, well, that was your office calling. They just found out you passed the bar. So we're going to take a break right now. Hmm. You're going to go downtown to circuit court where the judges can swear you in, find Hmm. a judge, get sworn in, come back, and this afternoon we'll resume the case with you as being a Mm -hmm. real lawyer. And then I can go to Labrador pick up a couple horses. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's how I found out that I passed the bar. I was mm. in the middle of a jury murder trial, which is unusual. Something. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I definitely have this question, too, as uh, many attorneys, as I, I tell people all, all the time, uh, especially uh, living in a community like this and what I've seen, um, the, the idea of how justice moves. It's like, Sit in the back of Frank Herf- Frank Murphy Hall of Justice one day and just just look at what's happening to get a better understanding because it's a whole you know the litigious the language the, the what's your thoughts on like the just so many of the uh, uh, of the of the pleas that are taken and uh, a lot of the trials that don't happen um, that that's happening consistently. In, in a city, it just in most of these regions, like predominantly with black males, what's what's your thoughts from 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 then to today to see things like that continue to ramp up? You know, it's hard for me to compare it to then because I I'm not involved in criminal uh-huh. cases anymore. Okay, uh, I, I, I shouldn't say that. I, occasionally, on a high profile client. I'll bring uh, one of my law partners, uh, Wally Pizatowski, Wally P. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've handled together some high-profile mm-hmm. criminal cases, like, for example, for Eminem uh, and mm-hmm. Marilyn Manson and Jack White, mm-hmm. uh, when they've gotten in trouble yeah. here. Uh, we've represented them together. But generally, I don't do the criminal cases anymore. But, you know, it, it, it's a, a system where... And in some ways it works. You couldn't have every case going to trial. Mm-hmm. It just, they'd never get there. I mean, mm-hmm. it'd be too many, unfortunately. So it's a question of, you know, is there a deal to be made? Mm-hmm. Uh, is the client, you know, willing to admit guilt? Mm-hmm. Because even if they are guilty, if there isn't enough evidence, they might be able to get off, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so are they willing to admit guilt and are they willing to accept whatever the best deal you can get for them mm-hmm. or do you have to go to trial? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's a, you know, it's a, a fine line often, but you have to have those guilty pleas. Now, you know, part of the problem when I was, I moved from the juvenile defender, eventually I did end up at recorder's court and circuit huh. court in the wow. adult offender office for a mm-hmm. short period. Um And, you know, part of the problem is that some of the judges were known for being really harsh at sentencing. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So you couldn't plead in front of them mm-hmm. unless there was a deal made ahead of time exactly what the sentence was going to be or what the range anyway was going to be. You couldn't plead in front of them. So after a while, what they did is they started sending the cases to a different judge mm-hmm. for a pretrial, and it would be a certain judge that would just be doing guilty pleas mm-hmm. or or not, if the person didn't plead guilty, then they'd mm-hmm. move back to whichever judge they had on blind draw. Hmm. But it was a way to try to move it along because it, it would be a judge who was a little more, I don't know if sympathetic is the right mm-hmm. word, but a little more realistic maybe mm-hmm. about sentencing. Uh, and even when there was a guilty plea, they were more willing to you know, come up with a sentence that the client you know, reluctantly could live with. Okay, so from recorder's court and circuit court, how do you end up in this entertainment business? How do you end up in intellectual property? Right, so right after I passed the bar, Mm -hmm. while I was still a juvenile defender, um, my wife, who's a teacher, switched school districts. She was a uh, special ed teacher, Mm. and she started off at uh, Wayne County Intermediate School District, Mm-hmm. Uh, teaching in a a building that the school district had in an old church right at the corner of Connor and Mac. Okay. Okay. Which even at the time was a pretty rough neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And uh, she taught there for four years and then got an offer. I guess she got her master's in, in working with emotionally impaired kids and mm-hmm. got an offer in Macomb County to work in a classroom with just emotionally impaired. In Detroit, uh, she had worked with um, mentally impaired kids, Mm -hmm. which is slightly different from emotionally impaired. Anyway, so she ends up working with severely emotionally impaired kids. So like that would be like a student that's witnessed something very traumatic or has been diagnosed from a psychiatrist or psychologist or something like that. Like Right. I, I uh, know. You know, some of them. Right. They'd be on the spectrum somewhere. So technically, uh, like your, your wife would be uh, someone with years and experience that could step in after like the tragic incident in Parkland and engage like figure out some type of. Like when they when they say like we're sending experts to talk to the kids after this tragedy, I'm thinking to myself like I don't even know what that would be, right? Yeah, like what, <laughs> yeah what but is those that? are more psychologists usually. Okay. She was working with kids who had severe emotional problems. Okay, that were acting out. Mm. That are the ones you think this kid's gonna end up in jail one day. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, because they they didn't know how to live within the norm. Mm-hmm. Uh, of a cl- normal classroom. They couldn't be integrated into a classroom. So like catching the kid before they do something. Right, exactly. Got you. So right after she started teaching at this school, in, in uh, it was actually in Warren, mm-hmm. um, another teacher at that school, the two of them, my wife Wendy and, and this uh, friend Jane, they hit it off right away. You know, they became mm-hmm. best of friends. You know how that happens sometimes. Yeah. And that woman's husband was a singer-songwriter. Hmm. And he had just been offered a music publishing contract. Okay. And um, Could be a good thing. He Could be a bad said thing. said to his <laughs> wife uh, one day, he said, I'm just going to sign it. She said, what do you mean you're going to sign it? You told me yesterday you don't understand what it says. How can you sign it? 
And wait, he said, wait, wait, before you even continue, it's so many people that do that. Let me talk to the camera. <laughs> I was talking about this with Lisa's. Read the contract. Read the contract. No, don't just read the contract, but no, what's in get, it a, get a lawyer yes. who is an entertainment lawyer to review True. it. True. Anyway, so he said, I'm just going to sign it. And she said, you, you can't just sign it. I saw you reading books. What did the book say? Nah, he didn't know what's in that guy. And he said, <laughs> what I got out of that was get an entertainment lawyer. And I don't even know a lawyer, let alone an entertainment lawyer. So Jane said to her husband, Ted, oh, my new friend Wendy I've been telling you about. Her husband's a lawyer. Let's call him. And I'm assuming you've been getting calls like that every day since you've been an attorney where it's like people just calling on all types of legal matters. Absolutely. It's like, hey, my neighbor put a fence two feet over the line. Like, can you come over here? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's true. So they called me. Okay. And I said, hey, if you're accused of murder, I'm your guy. Yes. <laughs> I don't know anything about entertainment law. I didn't know there was such a thing as entertainment law. Wow. So he said, well, could you could we meet and, and I can show you the contract. It's just a three-page mm -hmm. agreement. Maybe it can help me. I said, sure, I'll meet with you. So I looked at it. And first, before I looked at it, he said, uh, can you read this? Mm -hmm. And I said, Yeah. I, mm -hmm. Without looking at it, I can read. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm yeah, pretty yeah, good yeah, at that. Yeah. Yes, I can read that. Mm -hmm. And so I read it, and he said, do you understand it? And I said, yeah, I understand it. And before I could continue, he said, okay, you're way ahead of me. Hilarious. <laughs> way ahead of me. And I said, but I don't know what the choices are to negotiate. I don't know what's standard in the industry and what it should say if mm -hmm. we were going to negotiate it. So I can't tell you whether it's good or not good. And he was the smart one between us. He reached into his backpack and handed me a book, This mm -hmm. Business of Music, which at the time was the Bible. It's still one of them. Yeah, yeah. It's a, and it's a and uh, he said, read chapter 14 or whatever it was on music, publishing, and songwriting. And so I read it, and I said, oh, here's what we can do. And made a list of a few different negotiating points. And, and he said, well, would you call the publisher and talk to him and see if you know he'll make those changes and i said sure so i ended up doing that and and successfully negotiating and i said oh, this is wow. interesting i like this okay did you charge him anything or was it just like, i don't remember okay probably not ain't that but i don't remember so it's, it's and like we've stayed first, friends we're the, still friends the first client okay well <laughs> let, let me speak for him himself <laughs> he should never have to buy a beer around you <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> yes. So so about three weeks later, I'm at one of my new client's gigs, right? Because mm -hmm. now I have clients that have gigs. Hmm. And uh, this kid comes up to me and introduces himself as the publisher that I had talked to on the phone and hmm. negotiated the agreement with. And uh, when I say kid, I was young. I was 27 at the time. But he was only 18, this hmm. publisher. And it turned out that, you know, I kind of said, you know, how did you, know, how did you become how a did publisher you at 18? Business? And yeah, he said to me, well, how did you become an entertainment lawyer? I said, well, I'm not sure I am one yet. But. Hilarious. <laughs> so Hilarious. it turned out that he was a musician, was in a band, was actually signed to uh, Don Davis oh. uh, in a production deal. But nothing had happened yet. And he was okay. like, you know. When What's am I going to be a star, right? What's up? 
Well, his father was a writer in Hollywood who would commute Detroit to L.A. and was friends here with the guys in the uh, Teamsters Union. Okay. And the Teamsters Union was working at the studios in Hollywood at the time. And when there was a dispute at the studios, they would call this guy, Joel's his name, the publisher. Mm-hmm. They would call Joel's father and say, can you help you know, resolve this dispute? So he knew the people at the movie studios in mm-hmm. addition to, and the union, but in addition to by being a writer, he was kind of a negotiator for okay. them. Okay. Well, his father said to him, you know, They just started putting out movie soundtrack albums. Mm -hmm. That was in the mid-70s. That's when they first became big, movie soundtrack albums. And now I'm getting to know some of the people at the record companies. Maybe you should think about, instead of being a rock star, going on the business side Hmm. and finding something on the business side you can do. And I could introduce you to some of the business people at the record label. So father actually got through to a son at 18 years old. And he decided, right. And he decided to become a publisher. Ain't that something. Right. Okay. So he said to me, you know, I like the way you handle the negotiations. negotiations." He said, I've got a lawyer who's, you know, one of the old Motown lawyers Mm -hmm. that's close to retiring, not really taking on small matters and things. You mind if I send some people your way? Mm-hmm. I said, no, no, that'd be great. Mm-hmm. So he started to send people my way. So before you know it, then I would go to another client's gig and meet the other bands. And so mm-hmm. here I am at the public defender office. And while everyone's sitting around drinking coffee and chatting, waiting for their cases to be called, I'm reading Billboard and reading this wow. business of music and learning and, you know. More about the business. More about the business. Okay, that, that's somebody that should never have to buy a beer if he's around you. <laughs> <laughs> right. So then... Uh, so this guy, Joel, started to send me uh, different acts that he was People with. where there were problems oh, okay. that he knew needed a lawyer. So all of a sudden, I'm, this is like now I'm in private practice. Okay, mm-hmm. I'd left the Defenders. What, what, around what year is this? So I left the Defenders in 78 mm-hmm. and opened my own practice downtown initially for one year till 79. And then... Uh, Brad Schramm, my her- firm is Hertz Schramm. Mm-hmm. Brad Schramm was a prosecutor when I was a hmm. defense lawyer. So you all would go and back and we forth. We were anyway. friends. Okay. We became friends. Mm-hmm. We had cases against each other, then became friends. And then we decided I had left and I was out for a year and I was as busy as could be. And he had left and gone to work for a law firm in Birmingham and wanted to be on his own, wanted to be able to do his own thing rather than his Work boss under. telling yeah. him what to do, right? Yeah. So we said, let's do it together. Mm-hmm. So we formed the firm of Hertram in 79. It's almost 40 years. Next year Congratulations will be 40 Congratulations for that. Let me ask you this. Did he have any intellectual property experience no, at the time? No. So basically but, you took all of your books and said, read this. Well, no. He He's doing something totally different. He hmm. was into securities law eventually and real hmm. estate and different things. Well, hmm. well, I was doing entertainment law, intellectual okay. property. But he brought me one of my first real clients in the entertainment. Okay. like a big one. Which was... Uh, uh, Elmore Leonard, hmm. 
So I don't know if you're familiar with Elmore Leonard, the author who, mm-hmm. who died uh, four or five years ago now, I guess. I don't hmm. know, time plays yeah, tricks with yeah. you. But, uh, but Brad was a writer. He was a real good writer, and he was writing scripts for TV shows and trying to get it placed and this and that. And he had heard about Elmore Leonard that he was switching from doing uh, Western novels to crime novels. Hmm. So he got his address and he wrote him a letter and said, you know, I understand you're, you're writing crime novels and I'm a prosecutor downtown and I'm a writer, I'd love to meet with you and, and I can show you around and take you backstage you know, yeah. at, the, at the police department and prosecutors. And, yeah. and so they became friends. Huh. And then Elmore had a, a copyright problem, and I, Step Brad right and I in. ended up solving it, and then we became his, wow. his lawyer. Okay. So, so that, <laughs> as this is all happening, and, and you're getting deeper into uh, a lot of things with intellectual property, a lot of stuff is already changing in so many industries about just the distribution channels for. Well, at that point, the, the channels weren't changing so much. Well, mm-hmm. What was happening, there were a lot of things happening, but one of them was the in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, sales started to decline in music. Mm-hmm. And the record companies tried to do what we now call a 360 deal, Back then. Which is, back then, they called it an all-in deal. Where they get thing. a piece of everything. Right. Where they'd get a piece of everything. They tried doing it, and those of us representing artists fought against it, and successfully. And then in the early 80s, though, I think, I want to say 82 or 83, a couple things happened. One, uh, you had CDs mm-hmm. come about. So that increased sales. Because people who had vinyl, even if they were going to replace the, the vinyl, vinyl, they would go out and buy the CD. They mm-hmm. may have the vinyl, you know, somewhere, but they wanted to be able to take it to their car or whatever. So they were buying more CDs. So sales started going up. And then you also had major acts come along, like Michael Jackson, where, you know, selling, you know, mega millions. Mm-hmm. So the business picked up again. So they got away. The distribution channel was the same, but they got away from trying to force this all-in deal uh, mm-hmm. on the artist. And 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 you had a writer like in the wheelhouse is like a, a, a what we call like a big fish, but music has always been what I associated you with. But I guess it all kind of is interconnected. Is what's the difference in in these different forms of entertainment law? Like, do you is it? Are they closely related? Is it always different? What What's happening there? Um, so I do mainly four different things. Okay. okay. That's a lot of stuff already. That's a, I mean, <laughs> I do a hundred different things, but we'll okay. start as, as a lawyer I do. You could categorize it into four things. Mm-hmm. First one is negotiate and draft contracts. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that I do probably 65% of my time, I'm guessing, is music. Mm-hmm. The rest is a combination of film, television, and books, and mm-hmm. some radio. Okay. Okay. Uh, so it's a wide variety, and each one is different, but there are a lot of similarities. Okay. Okay. Uh, 
Then the second thing is uh, trademark and copyright. So uh, especially my associate, Joe Belanca, uh, he's been really taking over that aspect to the, for to a great extent, he's great at it, and and will do. For example, and it's been a little bit public, so I guess I can say, you know, we represent, for example, um, the Detroit versus Everybody brand. Mm-hmm. Okay. And people around the country and in other countries are constantly using that yeah, trademark I've seen for it Detroit in Meyer, for I've seen it in Walmart what, versus I've seen it every, everywhere. versus yeah. everybody right mm-hmm. something else versus everybody right uh, mm-hmm. sports teams so he's licensing it and we we do the work for him licensing it to a lot of places but a lot of places just do it so we have to go after them mm-hmm. so that's one of the things we do filing trademarks filing copyrights and enforcing them mm-hmm. okay the third thing I do is uh, dispute resolution, and that's a big part of what I end up doing, which is there's always a dispute between somebody and someone else in the Got entertainment right. industry. Always, always. Got that right. So um, I do – I try and resolve without litigation if possible because litigation is so expensive. It's over the top, but mm-hmm. it, it, it just – and, and like you were saying, you know, sometimes it's because you, you're going to court and you're just sitting there for hours waiting for your case to be called. Mm-hmm. But the lawyer's billing his time. And you that's, got that right. That's all you got. You got that right. And, and then, the, then the judge says, well, we're going to adjourn till tomorrow. You know, we ran out of time or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's crazy. Anyway, it's very expensive. So I always try and resolve without litigation. Uh, but I do get involved in litigation. I've been involved in lawsuits, for example, against uh, Apple twice. Uh, once for using an Eminem song in an iPod commercial uh, mm-hmm. without permission, and once for using an Eminem or f- for selling Eminem songs on iTunes without the proper license from the publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've also had you know a suit against Facebook. Every, every, um, every, I, I've had yeah. a suit recently, uh, unfortunately, get dismissed uh, against the FBI. Hmm. Uh, representing the Juggalos, mm-hmm. who are the fan base of the Insane Clown Posse. I actually remember that case. Yep. That was, uh, like, people were making fun of it. I was looking at it like, this is so unique. Well, it was, unfortunately, and it was very tragic. real, and the, <laughs> I think the court saying. dismissed it on bad grounds, but mm-hmm. but it, that's the way it goes. We appealed, and mm-hmm. the appellate court mm-hmm. agreed with the trial court, so that case is over. Mm. But... Uh, because they, the FBI classified Juggalos as a gang. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a million different things. Juggalos, a million happen. Juggalos. Yeah. They are not all gang members, and yeah. then they would start getting arrested or pulled over because yeah, they had yeah. a bumper sticker or a T-shirt or a tattoo or mm-hmm. whatever, and they would get harassed by the police and put mm-hmm. in the gang file. And then some of them that did get in trouble, they would enhance their charges because they yeah. were a gang member. I mean, it was. Yeah pretty crazy and it still is unfortunately so i get involved in that kind of litigation and then i also get appointed by courts to be either a mediator arbitrator Hmm. or uh expert witness on cases so i've been involved in cases court appointed with uh, barry gordy four tops the temptations anita baker wow uh and then others that you wouldn't have heard of but yeah but i would say about once every other year, I get a call from a judge and and get and then because into you, a case. you can step in with uh, with the knowledge that you have, right? And and represent 
the the be, a better understanding for everyone involved. and hopefully resolve it. Yes, right, better than the judge would have. Yeah, because it's like the judge is being a judge; they don't know exactly. intellectual property. They can't nuances. know everything, right? So, it, so, so I do that. So that's my third thing: dispute mm-hmm. resolution. And then the fourth thing I do is I network on behalf of clients. Okay, mm-hmm. it used to be called shopping a deal. Yes. but you don't always want the deal, so it's like just helping to get their projects to the right people to see what might come from it. Yeah. Okay, so those are the main things that I do. And then, you know, I'm on 10 different boards of directors. You are? And uh, And also the music festival. Uh, You've been pivotal in so many different people's careers, like behind the scenes stuff. Like people say, like, Howard made this call for me. He did this. And I'm like, that's cool. Yeah. I'm like that's I'm like that's that's definitely cool. Right. Uh, dealing with so many artists is I I look at a lot of artists just have uh, like the the like a, a it's almost like a savior syndrome like of of looking at any business opportunity like I just want to sign it kind of like how that guy is right. and I just want to be saved this was put in my life and let's 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 worry about whatever we can work out on the next deal yeah that mentality is so prevalent with so many artists how as an attorney over the years have you been able to hold the horses of the artist where they aren't moving so fast but you know, letting things balance out the right, right Well, way. the trick is, well, there are several issues. The first is to even get them to me, hopefully, before they sign something. It's, yeah, I hard. can't tell you how many times they come to me after the fact and say, yeah. you know, this deal doesn't, and it's not working out that great. Uh, can you get me out of it? And then I look at the contract they signed, and it's horrible. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't have been in it in the first place at least under those terms. They Mm -hmm. never negotiated it. They didn't know what it said. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it's not so easy to get out because it's a record company often that has the options. And as long as they're doing what they were supposed to do, they they can't guarantee success. Yeah, they wrote it in their favor. Right. Like right now, a lot of people are talking about all of the, uh, like I'm I'm even not sure what the name of it, but all these television uh, state, local stations have been bought by like this one company and they've had all these anchors sign these agreements and now they're reading different things and it's like a lot of the anchors didn't even know what they were signing. It was just right. like, I want to keep my job. So exactly, what yeah. am I supposed to do? Not sign it? Right. So then what I do is, assuming I do get hired ahead of time, I you know review the contract and I adjust it the way I think is fair. Mm-hmm. And, you know, beneficial to my client, but not over the top because you want to actually make the deal if mm-hmm. the client wants to make the deal. And then try to work out all of the items with usually there's a lawyer on the other side or sometimes it's the you know the production company or the record label without a lawyer mm-hmm. negotiating it and then when it gets to a point where if I'm satisfied with it I'll tell my client I think this is fair I think it's good it's to go. go you know mm-hmm. if you're happy with it let's do it and if I don't think it's good I'll tell the client that I, I, I'll say look this this is you know, the the number of points you're getting, you know, aren't enough or you don't have a good way to get out of the contract if they're not really performing or whatever it is. And then it's up to the client mm-hmm. whether they're going to still sign or not sign. Sometimes I say, look, I recommend you not sign it, but it's up to you. OK. And that that also is like another um, that leads to the the other presentation of this is like a lot of pro athletes that I've known have been taken advantage of from 
all types of business managers and just different people, but they meet them in strange places. But the I'm bringing this up because musicians and artists kind of have this same belief too of the invincibility of like, I'll be here, I'll end up with this again. Um, and planning for the future of a lot of artists. Well, the problem is that these record contracts can go 10 years yeah. without the artist having a choice of getting out. You know, it may say mm -hmm. that it's for, you know, five albums or seven albums or something. And that, you know, used to be that, you know, back in the Beatles, they would put out, you know, two albums a, a year, year or whatever. Yeah. But now it's, you know, an album every two, three years very often. And so if you're in a five album deal, that can just go on and on and on. You know, the best thing you can hope for in that situation in a, in a way is for it to be under California law where seven years is the maximum uh, for a contract, a service contract in the entertainment industry. After seven years, you can get out, but it's a long time. Yeah. So you can't assume that it's gonna get better. Now, if, if you sign, for example, with a major and the terms aren't as good as you would hope for, but all of a sudden you're really successful, they want to keep you happy. So a lot of times you can renegotiate some of the terms. Mm -hmm. But if if you're just mediocre or in the middle somewhere, you know, it, they're not interested tough. in bettering the deal because that's going to make it worse for them. And, and what's, your, what's your take on what's happening with the music industry now with just the idea of, like I was buying CDs, but my my younger cousins they're consuming music, but they're they're not buying it. They're, right, you know. Well, when the free mm -hmm. downloading first started, um, it really took the wind out of the sails of of the music industry. I mean, got that right. It, it literally the income was cut in half over a f period of several years it got down to where it was only 50 percent of what it was and and mm -hmm. that really cut out the small newer artists mm -hmm. uh but i was an advocate at the time of uh streaming services that either because it would compete with the free that either be free with advertising or you would pay a subscription mm -hmm. and and uh, so like the not Spotify have the ads. Model, sort of. What's that? So like the Spotify or like what else is, what did my mom Yeah, Pandora. Use? Pandora, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and as it's turned out, that's what has developed. Mm -hmm. And we're just seeing now where actual sales are going up considerably mm -hmm. or, or income streams are going up considerably. But the tricky part is that it's still, the songwriters are being shortchanged and the artists, to some extent, are still being shortchanged. The labels are doing better, but not necessarily the artists. Mm -hmm. So there need to be, and there's some legislation pending right now, there needs to be some changes made that'll assure that as this pie grows bigger, which it seems mm -hmm. to be doing, that the artists and songwriters are benefiting from it as well. How do you, like I've always wondered this, and I was going back and forth with this place that was selling my music years ago, and uh, my attorney, is Stephanie Hammonds. I don't know if you know Stephanie. Sure, I know but, Stephanie. Um, but that's my attorney. And we were just talking back and forth. And I was like, man, I was moving too fast. Again, I do that all the time. But <laughs> uh, but I, the auditing of it, like, how do you trust? Because it was people coming up to me like, yeah, I downloaded your album yesterday. And I'm like, damn, I, I swear I didn't get the money. 
You know, like right. I'm like I'm seeing this. I like I, why would this person lie to me? You know what I mean? And right. and then I'm I'm interacting back and forth like the audit trail, and that's what I always liked. I, I told a guy I did some music with for my last album, and it was in. You know, I was working on it for forever, but I released it in 2015. And he was like, why are you still making CDs? I was like, I know how many CDs I printed. I know it's it's <laughs> it's a it's a hard item. I can audit this. Right. Whereas I, digitally, like, how yeah, do you? It, 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 very difficult. You know, you, you've got to have some trust, which is. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Crazy yeah. word, the incentivized, yeah. But it's real difficult. But, you know, for example, uh, one of the lawsuits I was involved in, uh, actually, it was against Apple mm-hmm. uh, in Detroit, but then we had a companion case against Universal in California. We had two cases going at the same time, one about the recordings and one about the publishing. Mm-hmm. And it had to do with Eminem's music, and it had to do with this very issue of... Mm-hmm. You know, how do you audit uh, digital? Mm-hmm. And at the beginning, they were just giving you gross numbers on mm-hmm. the statements. You know, it's, you know, yeah. whatever the amount is, we you think, know, 50000 yeah, yeah. We think it was 50000 this month, yeah. For this six-month period or whatever. And there was no way to really know, well, where did it come from? How, you know, how were you counting it? What was the multiplier even? So at one point... Um, an audit was conducted, and it turned out that they were paying a reduced rate for the streams than they should have by contract. Hmm. And without getting into too much detail, because this went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, hmm. <laughs> the case uh, in California, what really what was happening is they were saying that the digital streams and the digital downloads, it was really more about mm-hmm. downloads. Again, how do you keep track, right? Yeah. The digital downloads, that that was uh, the same as selling a CD or uh, a, uh, a record, vinyl record, mm-hmm. that that was normal retail channels, hmm. even when it went through iTunes. Hmm. Okay. In the contract, it would say, for example, for an artist, let's say uh, 15% of suggested retail might be a royalty rate that an artist would get in a major label deal when they're first starting. Okay. But the old school contracts all said, but if we license it to a third party... Mm-hmm. You get 50% of whatever we get. Wow. Okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, which is, it's apples to oranges. It's a different calculation, but it's still quite a bit more than the 15% of suggested retail. Sure. So it was our position that when you license it to iTunes to distribute it, that's a license. Sure. So it should have been 50%. And they we're arguing, no, that's nowadays that's normal retail channel. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't agree. We brought a motion b- before trial. The other side brought a motion before trial, you know, t- that we should mm-hmm. win. And the judge said, no, let's let the jury decide. Hmm. So it went to trial, and the, the lawyer from Universal convinced the jury 
by using the argument a record is a record is a record. It doesn't matter if it's a vinyl record or if it's an eight-track tape or if it's a cassette or if it's a CD. Mm-hmm. Now, downloads, yeah. it's a record. Mm-hmm. We happen to use Apple and iTunes to distribute the record, but it's still normal retail channels. Hmm. And the jury bought that. Wow. Okay? And we appealed to the Ninth Circuit because it was a California case. They, they appealed it to the Ninth Circuit a court of appeals, and the court of appeals agreed with us hmm. that on its face, it was a license to Apple. Hmm. So if it's a license, it's 50% yeah. of the net that you get. That's cool. So, and then they appealed, Universal appealed to the I'm U.S. Sure Supreme they, Court. And I'm the, sure they're going to keep appealing. And the Supreme forever. Court said, we're not going to take it hmm. because they don't take most cases unless there's a dispute between different uh, circuits around hmm. the country that hmm. they want to resolve. And there was no dispute. That was a ruling, and, and the U.S. Supreme Court said, you're going to have to live with it. Wow. So it's things like that that pop up that do make changes because now then there were class actions mm-hmm. that were yeah. formed against record companies because how would we wouldn't have known that but for the audit, and it costs a lot of money to audit. So young artists or starting yeah. out artists, they can't afford to hire an auditor and go in and really yeah. audit everything. And uh, what's so what's so funny, and I, I'll talk offline because I don't want to throw all the business in the street, but my dad's a CPA, but he also develops accounting systems. Uh-huh. And in developing accounting systems for over 30 years, he ended up interacting with the artists. So he had to develop his own system and trail of tracking through uh, interest in a, in a series of different songs because somebody approached, I don't know if you're familiar with this, like it's different groups that approach aging artists. Uh, for their whole catalog. Sure. And it'll be like, look, we'll give you $250,000 for your whole catalog. Right. And then it's like, all right, now how do we quantify, as my dad's always like, he's big into... He's big into numbers. I mean, he's always big into auditing. And he was like, how do you audit all this music? And I was like, let me ask Stephanie how to do this. I was <laughs> going back and forth. And then she was like, that generally costs X amount. And then the firms that generally audit are only working in the interest of either most record labels or huge artists. So it, right. it's... It's another one of the variables as we think and being an artist is tough. And then even when you talk about streaming, as I'm learning uh, through my YouTube plays and I'm considering releasing a a movie through uh, Amazon and Netflix, like getting paid per uh, how long somebody streams it. Like you'll get paid. So the song is three minutes, but they only stream (laughs) five seconds of it. So it's like we're going to pay you based on what the stream would have been for the percentage of the song that they listened to. And I was like, oh, man, this is just confusing me right now. (laughs) Nothing. Yeah, it's like, yeah, we're going to pay you like a a penny and an iota. So it's good to see that um, as these things are changing, um, it's attorneys that are working on behalf of the interest of artists, but the systems are are becoming so huge. Oh, yeah. And, And then the problem, another problem, for example, I have a client now where we are getting regular royalties from one of the major publishing companies. Mm-hmm. And they come to me and I review the statements and, and I started seeing problems and questions that I had. And you know, I sent the questions to the, uh, to the publisher and 
for them, it's just a small deal. For my client, it's a huge deal. Yeah. So it keeps going on the back burner. So it's been a year and a half now. I haven't gotten answers to my questions other than, yeah, we think you're right. We're going to look into it and get back to you on that. Yeah. Well, get back to me already, right? It's, it's, it's like, yeah. It's like I care more about my, my light bill than I do, uh, you know, the guy that puts down mulch for my mom. And so it's like I keep – it's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, right. I do owe you $50. My yeah, bad. I'll get man. back to you. Yeah, yeah. right. So, yeah. so it's – you know, it's hard. It is hard. I want to get back if I can. I know you've got more topics, but if I can go back a bit, I think it's interesting how uh, – you know, serendipity or how one thing leads to another. Mm-hmm. So I was telling you about this young publisher, 18 years old, Joel. Yeah. So he started sending me people. So he started sending me uh, the romantics in, oh. in the early 1980s when they uh, had some issues. Uh, they had the big song, uh, What I Like About You, back mm-hmm. then, and I was working with them. And then uh, he brought to me a guy named Armin Baladian, and Armin was uh, a had a couple of record labels and publishing companies, and was in negotiations with George Clinton. Uh, he was his executive producer, mm-hmm. and I got a phone call from Armin one day, and can you meet me tonight at the uh, Holiday Inn in Hazel Park hmm. because I have a meeting there with George, and I want you to represent me in negotiate this deal so I ended up this is in 82 or 83 I forget now Mm -hmm. uh, working with George eventually representing him as well doing his deal with Prince Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was through this first publisher right Hmm. so then the, the publisher himself hires me Joel Martin is his name he hires me to represent him and he's also then he opens a recording studio and he starts managing people he's doing he's doing all, more now all different things mm-hmm. and I'm working with him and and two of the guys he's managing are brothers uh, the Bass brothers and yeah. I set up their publishing company and and production company you know the legal work for it and start signing artists to their production and publishing company and one of the artists we signed is a guy in 1995 named Marshall B. Mathers III. Wow. So from the very first deal that I did in 76, yeah. it was a direct line to signing Marshall to the production and publishing company and then working with him over the last 21 years. I'm mm-hmm. not his entertainment lawyer, but I still work with him, represent the Marshall Mathers Foundation, for example, and... And when personal issues pop up, uh, I'm called on sometimes to to work with him. So it shows how, Mm -hmm. you know, one thing can lead to another, and you never know where it's going to come from. Yeah, and and it's funny, as you touched on a couple people that I've met over time, not not as much uh, interactions. I've met Eminem twice. You call him, that's why I call him Eminem. Marshall or M. Long enough. So, yeah, I've met him twice, but I was, uh, as most of us Detroit rappers are, we, we... idolized proof so um so it was kind of through proof uh and and everything but that kind of drives me right into like george and some of the i've met george a couple times too he's he's definitely a a, a character i would say lively lively (laughs) lively so he's um, a character so but when you when you're working with artists 
as they're struggling, as uh, I sometimes like to, I don't like the term devil's advocate, but I'm understanding in that business management, like sometimes artists are struggling with their own addictions, their own demons and stuff. And it's some, you know, I, I know the business side is hard to just wake up like when you're representing Richard Pryor and it's like, man, did he just set himself on fire? And then you got this million dollars and it's like half is supposed to go to Richard and you're just like, yeah, I'm going to pocket this. So when situations like that happen, as artists are dealing with uh, addictions or divorce or like these traumatic things that are very commonplace in many artists and, and really a lot of Americans too, but oftentimes an artists, uh, being an attorney uh, in those times through crises, uh, does does it present, uh, is it more challenging uh, when that happens and then you, you have all these legal matters that pop up uh, to still like keep the artists focused through the, I guess the haze, the smoke, the whatever's in their face? Yeah, it, it is difficult sometimes, but a lot of times it's the manager, the personal manager, that's involved more on the day-to-day personal issues. Mm-hmm. I deal more with the legal issues. And while... that's why I'm saying, like, does, like, because just with, for instance, um, and it's so weird, uh, By- Byron Williams, or Baby from Cash Money Records, as, like, a lot of their artists, like Little Wayne especially, uh, when you are the attorney for Little Wayne, and the manager is dealing day-to-day, but he's going in and out of jail. He's dealing with whatever and, and rehab. Right. And now you still have, like, this legal matter that's pressing. Like, what what obstacles does that present for you as an attorney, like, through all of that? Because I'm assuming that the label's like, all right, I'm about to exploit this situation because they're in jail, they're traumatized, they're, you know. Well, I mean, it it presents challenges, certainly, because you want to, to the extent you can, move things along in a way that's favorable to your client. Mm -hmm. But it's difficult sometimes to communicate, you know, with the client if they're in rehab or in jail or or whatever. And, Mm -hmm. And you just have to use your best judgment to sometimes to slow things down. Mm hmm from the outside world so that they're not putting the pressure to resolve it now, get it done now. Sometimes you have to say, just slow down. We have, you know, bigger things we have to deal with right now. And once the timing is right, then we'll look at the new recording contract or we'll look at the opportunity, uh, you know, for this television show or whatever it is. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes it's just kind of balancing between uh, the urgency that's put on you by these third parties to get this done right away and mm-hmm. the needs of the client, which is often just, you know, slow things down. Let's take a breath. Mm. Okay. And uh, I'm a, we're going to close out as we're definitely in overtime, but this is such a fun discussion for me. Um, close out with, uh, please give some advice to, to up and coming artists about what, what they should do legally uh, to protect themselves and just, not just legally what they should do to protect themselves, but just stay motivated because so many people grow disenfranchised with their artistry because of the business. Right. Well, from a legal standpoint in terms of protecting their music, mm-hmm. they really need to understand copyright. Mm-hmm. You've got to file a copyright for every track before you put it out. Because people do uh, borrow 
yeah, let's okay. say, Crea- so you creative, music. <laughs> creative interpretation. That's right. Let's use that so, term. you know, technically, when you write something, you own the copyright to it as soon as it's in some type of tangible medium, whether it's on paper mm-hmm. or a recording, something tangible, you own the copyright to it. But by filing the copyright, you get many benefits. One of them is if there is a dispute and if it does go to court, the fact that you filed the copyright, there's a presumption that you own the copyright to that song. Mm -hmm. The other side can rebut it with evidence, but you've you've already got the Mm -hmm. presumption, okay? The second thing is that there's something called statutory damages that you can get. So, for example, normally... If you're suing someone, let's say, for copyright infringement, you have to prove what your damages are or what their profits are. Well, there may not be evidence of that, or it may be difficult. It might be speculative. But there's a statute that says if it was an intentional use of the copyright by someone else, Mm -hmm. then you can get up to $150,000 without having to prove your damages, without having to Mm -hmm. prove the profits of the other side, the court can decide how much to award you, up to $150,000 for each uh, wrongful use. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, important, and you only get those statutory damages if you filed within three months of first releasing it and before the person violated your copyright. So you want to file it before you even send it around. Okay. Okay, and you can learn to do that online. Uh, the U.S. Copyright Office has the materials. You can file it and upload it directly to them. Do you need a lawyer? If there's more writers and more publishers involved, you probably should have a lawyer do it for you, mm-hmm. at least the first few times so you understand it. But it's not a complicated process. So you want to protect your music or your script or whatever it is with with a copyright. Mm-hmm. The other thing you can get with if you've properly filed is attorney fees from the other side if you win, mm-hmm. whereas in most lawsuits you don't get the attorney fees of the other side. And here it's in the statute that if you filed your copyright, you can get attorney fees. Mm-hmm. So that's important. And then in terms of what do, what do you do next, you try everything. You just, you know, whether it's uh, blogging or getting to people that have blogs, that's a great way to get the word to spread about your music. Try to get, mm-hmm. uh, you know, newspapers or, or magazines uh, to write about you and to include mm-hmm. a clip at least from your music or a link to your music on Spotify or wherever it is. Make sure, you know, if you're doing it independently, that you're either with like a TuneCore or a CD Baby somewhere where they can get it spread mm-hmm. to all of the streaming and download uh, companies around the world. And then try everything, you know, do the live gigs. You've got to, you know, even if it's a small gig with hardly anyone there and you're not getting paid, you got to practice. Mm-hmm. So you just start doing the gigs. Maybe the first time five people show up and then a couple months later you come back to the same place and maybe they bring a few friends and all of a sudden you're at 25 and then it becomes 100 and then start going to other cities in the region. You mm-hmm. don't have to go all the way out to New York or California. There's, you know, you can go to Ohio, you can go to Illinois, you can go to Wisconsin and find you know, small clubs or whatever it is, and start performing to to hone your craft and to build a fan base. And then, of course, uh, social media is so important now mm-hmm. that you've really got to be everywhere. On top of it. 
everywhere. Yeah, on top. Okay. Of that. So, man, that was that was powerful. I'm glad you said it, and uh, I'm sure that the people connected to Detroit is different will be inboxing the hell out of you, like represent me, represent me, represent me. And that's another thing. You have a spectrum of like I sometimes look at Stephanie because uh, at the time when she was representing me and then Big Sean at the same time, and then you're like, wow, this is like such a different. You know, it's like God knows what my matter and that matter. Um, how do you, uh, a, a, as someone that has represented so many different artists from different spectrums, because everybody in your wheelhouse is not a diamond selling artist like Eminem and uh, some some are independent. Um, how, how do you go about making your selections of building these relationships with the artists you choose to work with? Well, in terms of if it's trying to network on their behalf, for example, mm-hmm. you know, the key before you go to a major label, for example, you know, I have connections to the major labels, but they don't want to hear about an artist that no one knows about yeah. and that doesn't already have a buzz. Mm-hmm. As they put it, they want to have someone that they've already heard about when I bring it to them, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that maybe has sold 50,000 copies yeah. or something. And I always joke and say, hey, if they're selling 50,000 copies just in Detroit, they might just do it on their own. What you do I need right. you for? You but, right. but you've got to have a buzz. You, something has to have triggered and mm-hmm. and that's why I say you have to try everything to see where that you know whether it's a blog or free downloads or whatever it is mm-hmm. to get your name out there and perform and and be out there. Uh, but so if it's for networking on their behalf, they have to be at a certain level, mm-hmm. in my opinion, for me to be able to help them to so even do business. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But for doing contracts. Honestly, it's can they afford to pay me mm-hmm. what the fee is going to be in order to review and, and negotiate the contract or draft the contract? I don't base it. Whole... I don't base it mm-hmm. on whether I like their music or not. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I don't even hear the music. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really more a business decision of, of, you know, is this someone who can afford to pay me? And and if so, what are the terms? And let's do it. Okay. All right. And now I have two last Detroit is different questions because you went through the first one already. I already know that 64 and a half Mustang was your 65. Mine was a 65. 65. Okay. Um, (laughs) That was your first car. And I know the first place you were rolling was over uh, to Montreal. Um, Yeah. Let's see. Um, The the next question is the end of the Detroit fireworks. Woodward and Jefferson. You get to play three songs for the crowd. What are you playing? Lose yourself. Okay. All right. M or Eminem. Yeah. Oh boy, that's a tough one. Really. Um, all you need is love. Oh the man. The Beatles. All you need is love. Okay. Just for the for the feel and everybody feel. there. And the times they are a changing. Bob Dylan. They they sure are. So I'm guessing that Lose Yourself is definitely going to go at the end of that. All You Need Is Love is probably going first. Times Are Changing Dylan, one of the greatest songwriters ever. Yeah. It's going right in the middle. Smack dab. Yeah. And then if you could rename Woodward after one Detroiter, who would it be and why? That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Um, it would definitely be someone in the music industry. I figured that. Um, 
Possibly Barry Gordy. Hmm. That oh, we've had that before. Mr. Gordy is uh, a, a heck of a. What's so funny is somebody said Maxine Powell the other day too, but you know, right? So it's a uh, Motown. We, you can't go wrong with Barry Gordy. No, I think that, and I think Barry Gordy because you know, even though you know, uh, Motown isn't what it was, mm-hmm. it still has had a huge impact on music all around the world. I mean, everyone knows Motown music. Yeah. Except for the young people. A lot of young people have no clue. It's amazing. Even them, um, with what's happening with the remodeling of the museum, what they're doing, uh, we had uh, Robin Terry leading the Motown Museum here in the studio not too long ago. Okay. Uh, So it's a lot more ideas about the music and in the foundation, even the way that the songs were written, the whole idea, sound of young America. It's... Yeah, no, so, yeah, I, I would go with uh, Barry Gordy and Motown because this is Motown. That's perfect. You want to share anything for the people? How to get in contact with you? Um, what's happening next? Well, yeah, next uh, would be the uh, Detroit Music Awards. Yes, yes. Uh, those are coming up uh, May 4th at the Fillmore, mm-hmm. and we've got a, a great uh, lineup, um, new or fairly new up-and-coming rapper Cash Doll is going to be there yes. performing. Yes. Uh, Melvin Davis, who's you know R and B from. Melvin Davis is a is a forever like walking, <laughs> a walking institution. Exactly, he's going to be mm-hmm. performing, and we're giving him a uh, an achievement award. Great, great. A distinguished achievement award. Great. Um, Frontier Ruckus is going to be performing. Mm. Uh, so is Liquid Monk. Okay, Liquid Monk. That's I, I have. I've heard of Frontier, but I haven't heard of Liquid Monk. That's Liquid a great Monk is that's kind a great of a, name. electronic, but it it combines jazz and all oh, kinds okay. of. I haven't really. I haven't seen them live, but I heard what really, they got. Really, very okay. cool. Very cool. Uh, and then uh, Virginia Violet and the Rays. And, okay. And I, I haven't heard them yet, but they are described as a new Motown. Hmm. With horns, and they're supposed oh. to be great. Okay. Um, and then uh, the original members of Sponge, which was, oh. you know, big rock group in Detroit, yeah. uh, that uh, their original album is uh, being honored in a sense. Uh, it was called Rotting Pinata, and that went gold, and it was kind of a big deal around here, and we're having the original members that haven't played together i think since like 1994 or something that in terms of them playing together and they're getting an honor as well and then we're also having uh assemble sound uh which is a an organization in detroit they bought a church uh in corktown Mm -hmm. and they have residencies there for our new up-and-coming artists Mm -hmm. and then they do licensing as well and they're going to have a, they're calling it Assemble Sound Residency Performance. So okay. I'm not sure who, what they're going to do, what they're going to combine. I know it'll be great because yeah. they're really, really talented. Mm-hmm. And then we're also honoring uh, Allie Willis. And I don't know if you're familiar with Allie, but Allie, yeah. uh, aside from the fact that she went to my uh, my elementary school, Schultz, and then she went to Mumford when I, I went so. to Cass, but, but she is a world-renowned songwriter. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wrote 
songs, for example, for Earth, Wind, and Fire. Hmm. She wrote the music for Color Purple, hmm. the, the movie and play. She uh, wrote the theme song for the TV show Friends. Oh, I mean, okay. she's just got one thing after another. Actually, she's being inducted into the uh, Songwriters Hall of Fame this year, hmm. uh, you know, the National Songwriters Hall of Fame. And we're going to give her the uh, Spirit of Detroit Entertainment Award this year. Hmm. We started two years ago. This will be our third year giving a Spirit of Detroit Award along with uh, City Council and the uh, Detroit Entertainment Commission. Okay. So it's a very cool thing, and yeah. she's getting that this year. That's powerful. That's powerful. Uh, definitely, I will be in the house. A lot of my friends, uh, I'm, I'm sure, will probably be up for nominee. Uh, I, I'll be doing a show with Luther Keith the week before that, and uh, like Carolyn Strio and Thornetta David. It's always like cool people. If it wasn't for, let me say this. As a rapper, if it wasn't for um, knowing Paul Miles that I met there, I yeah. wouldn't know all these other different types of musicians. Because people always ask me, like, how do you know all these people that play all these different uh, instruments and stuff? I'm like, well, Paul um, got me going and, and said, all right, you got to, you got to, you know, Paul is so full of energy. Paul's a wonderful guy. He's like, he's like all right, all right, all right, all right, man, you got to, you got to get out here and perform. I'm like, hey, man, whatever, man, give me a knee smack and a thigh slap. I'll start rapping. And then this is just, you know, been going and I've met some of the coolest people connected to music through the music awards that play all types of music. And I got to congratulate you and your whole team for doing that for so long because it connects a lot of the clicks that generally would not intersect of right. gospel, rap, uh, international, folk, country, blues, like it's All everything. genres, yeah. And that's what our goal is, is to try and be a network for all genres of music, for them to meet each other, work together, do yeah. things together. We yeah. try and do mashups, you know, even for the performances where we're bringing together a, a jazz artist and a hip-hop artist or whatever it is. And, and it's it's great, and it's always a fun night. Uh, it's oh, open yeah. to the public. You oh, know, yeah. Mostly music people are there. We have a, usually about 1,200 people from the mm -hmm. music scene in Detroit, which all, is all a pretty time. big number, and it's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's nice to honor the great talent. We have the best talent in Detroit of any city in the world. Best well, music talent. It's a lot of people that want to do that argument. I agree with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, that was fun. And Stay up on the real culture of Detroit by tuning in to the Detroit is Different Podcast Network weekly. Music, art, business, comedy, and never-before-told stories from the people of Detroit. This is the Detroit is Different Podcast Network, the culture of an American classic city. You're listening to the Detroit is Different Podcast Network.